Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. <clears throat> Welcome to Season 2, Episode 80, um, the end of Part 3 of Preservation Philosophies. So let's get started. So uh, a main palace in Seoul, South Korea, was constructed in 1395 as the Royal Palace. 200 years later, it burned down, and it remained in ruins till 1867 when it was reconstructed. 50 years later, it fell into the hands of the Japanese, who destroyed the grand entrance to build a neoclassical building. With the intent to eradicate the symbolic heritage of a former Korean dynasty and to house Japanese colonial offices. Korea was liberated in 1945. In 1996, the newer structure was removed and a major restoration effort began for the palace including the rebuilding of a traditional main gate. The architectural principles of ancient Korea were incorporated into a tradition and appearance of the Joslin Royal Court. A 20-year restoration project was planned for the Korean government to restore this to its formal status. Today, the palace, located in the capital city of Seoul, is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the country and it serves as a representative example of the preservation and restoration of a national monument and shrine. It is a restoration project significant to an entire nation and culture. The Japanese offer a different perspective on restoration, more Eastern in philosophy, that is per perhaps best represented by the cyclical reconstruction of the Il Shrine de Il, the earliest construction of this shrine is said to date from the 3rd century. It was originally built as a simple structure dedicated to their sun goddess, and its design was derived from that of the granaries and treasure storehouses of prehistoric Japan. The shrine's architectural style is known as Shamir Zukuchi, which is characterized by extreme simplicity and based on principles dating back to 250 to 538 BC. Built on sacred, built of sacred cryptopontary wood, it was situated on a cleared site and <clears throat> surrounded by carefully manicured large white pebbles. The construction used no nails, but instead relied only on joined wood for its structural connections. The Japanese brought a unique perspective to the preservation of this temple. To ensure the structure's continuing historical significance, every 20 years, the shrine is torn down and a new one is built. And this is, what I must say, is a considerable expense. On an immediately adjacent site, matching the previous site and structure in every detail. With each cycle, the shrine shifts between the two sites. The present structure dating from 2013 is the 62nd iteration, with the next rebuilding scheduled for 2033. The Japanese consider each structure not a replication of the original, but a recreation of it, recognizes the impermanence permanence of renewal of all things as being an enduring condition. This philosophy reflects the natural order of things, for nature allows things to live and die and from that cycle comes perpetual renewal.
But not all cultures see preservation as saving older structures in the way practiced by Western cultures. Perhaps because theirs, in an ancient culture, in a crowded country, whose thousands of historic sites all bear many layers of history, the Chinese do not consider the preservation of physical structures as critical. The Chinese have put more value on the saving of images through art and writing. Preservation fabric, simply because it is old, typically would not be seen as reasonable in China. Quite in a sense, they see a building as having an indestructible soul that can survive any renovation or even rebuilding. As described by Professor David Lowenthal, old works must perish for new ones to take their place. And confusion percepts judge material possession a burdensome vice. In the traditional Chinese view, preserving objects and buildings reduces creation to commodity. It demands both of object and of owner. These ancient Chinese attitudes about the value of preservation are changing in 21st century China, but largely for economic reasons only. Chinese authorities and planners are recognizing that historic preservation is good for tourism, and preservation and economic development are closely linked. In 1997, China's State Administration of Cultural Heritage prepared a document, Principles for the Conservation of Heritage Sites in China, to address the new situation and introduce China to the international preservation world. By 2010, more than 110 towns were approved to be, quote, national grade and were awarded the title Historically and Culturally Famous Cities and Towns in China. In 2016, the Chinese Society of Cultural Relics and the Archaeological Society of China compiled the 20th century Chinese architectural heritage list, naming many 20th century buildings worthy of preservation. So such historic districts in Shanghai is a case study representing multiple perspectives Chinese brings to preservation. This was an old city area in Shanghai's historic French Quarter. It was composed of mid-19th century stone gate houses on narrow alleys, a special form of traditional courtyard-style architecture found only in Shanghai. These type of houses are relics of Shanghai's fascinating history. But over the years, the area had sadly deteriorated because of lack of maintenance. A Hong Kong developer recognized the potential for redevelopment of this district in order to restore the original appearance of these alleys. The developer demolished and then reconstructed many of the buildings based on old design drawings. The original bricks and tiles were salvaged before construction commenced. The district was converted into one of the first pedestrian-oriented lifestyle centers of China. An American architect, Benjamin Wood, was selected as a project designer. Ironically, he considered himself more a realist than a romantic when it came to restoration. He described his approach as follows. I disdain preservation. I don't believe you should proclaim things dead or turn them into museums. I believe you should breathe life into spaces. That's my goal. I want to make living areas where people eat, drink, and enjoy themselves.
So with its redevelopment, it has become one of the most expensive places to live in China, some apartments costing more than those in Tokyo, New York, or even London. Redevelopment of the district displaced 3,500 Shanghaiese families, but many received more than market value for their properties. So this is one of the main attractions in Shanghai and is considered a model for redevelopment areas across Asia. So let's move on to Warsaw, Poland. The rebirth of Warsaw, Poland, in response to the widespread destruction of its historic resources during World War II, represents a comprehensive, radical approach to historic preservation. Citizens of the capital city fiercely resisted Nazi invasion during the war, but paid dearly for this resistance, which resulted in the death of more than 150,000 Poles, followed by the virtual destruction of the historic center as an act of revenge by Nazi forces. This loss was in, in addition to the nearly 300,000 Jews who were deported or killed inside of the Warsaw Ghetto. At the end of the war, only 6% of the city's residents remained in the city. In this cataclysm, almost 90% of Warsaw's buildings were reduced to rubble, significantly greater destruction than was caused by the atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Following the war, returning residents of Warsaw, and indeed the Polish people themselves as a whole, exhibited a remarkable determination to rebuild their city to look virtually as it did before the war. Though controversial and costly, the decision was made to reclaim the country's cultural heritage, and the central portion of Warsaw was recreated using as many of the original materials as possible. The destruction was so complete, however, that in many cases only architectural fragments were recovered, and buildings had to be recreated through an approach known as reconstitution. Reconstitution is defined by James Mad um, Madison Fitch as a radical version of conservation, in which the building can be saved only by piece by piece by piece reassembly, either in situ or on a new site. Reconstitution in situ is ordinarily the consequence of disasters such as war and earthquakes. This was the case in Warsaw, where most of the original con constituent parts remained but were scattered so widely. In some instances, building materials from other vintage Polish cities that were also damaged in the war were shipped to Warsaw and used in the effort to help rebuild the capital city. Amazingly, though, 22 paintings by the Venetian painter Bernardo Bellotto of 1722 to 1780 that depicted 18th century views of many of the plazas, squares, and buildings that lined the medieval streets of Warsaw survived the war and were used as the basis for rebuilding. In the hands of Polish architects, planners, conservators, historic preservationists, art historians, and the people of the nation, Warsaw rose from the ashes and debris of military destruction to reclaim its place in European history. Now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, the restoration of Warsaw is looked on as one of the premier preservation accomplishments of the 20th century and serves as a model of resilience, research, and vigilant reconstruction. So that, that ends our preservation philosophies. That's part three. 
And for anybody looking to see uh, us, the Historic Preservation, in, in the conservation studio or in situ on site um, doing horology, restoring furniture, or architectural preservation, please find us at the Historic Preservationists, all lower lowercase, all one word. Greg Perry signing out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>